How's everybody this morning? Good. Good to see you this morning. If you're visiting with us this morning, I want to add my word of welcome. I'm Pastor T, one of the pastors here at uh, Anacostia River Church, and uh, we're so glad that you're visiting with us this morning. Um, welcome. We hope you'll stick around after the service. Let us greet you. Have some coffee and muffins. You got to beat the kids to the muffins, um, but uh, stick around and, and let us fellowship a little bit after the service. Before I turn to God's Word this morning, I want to also add my word of thanks to all the members of ARC who uh, prayed for the job fair, uh, for the 20 or so folks who showed up to volunteer, taking time off work, away, away from businesses and things of that sort, to help other folks find um, employment. We were in there deep, man. It was, it was encouraging. Uh, and I want to tell you, this was, this was perhaps one of the most hope-filled experiences I think I've had in ministry. I mean, after the privilege of leading someone to Christ or preaching the gospel in the Middle East where, you know, it hadn't been preached publicly, you know, just being there and engaging with the members of the community and seeing how they came with such hope, uh, four or five hundred deep, uh, and then seeing how the volunteers engaged them, transferring hope. It was the first time I've been a part of a, a job fair that felt humane. It was encouraging, deeply encouraging, seeing folks leave encouraged with the, with the comfort of the gospel and of, of Christian fellowship. And so just a big word of thank you to all you who prayed, who came, who served. And I want to invite you to pray for something. Pray the Lord might give us wisdom for doing this on a regular basis maybe doing this at least twice a year, a spring and a fall job fair, and really working to help our neighbors get connected to gainful, meaningful employment. It was a wonderful time. Amen? All right. Well, let's turn to prayer and to God's Word. Indeed, Lord Jesus, you are the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone on which the whole building is built. Lord, we dare not lay any other foundation than your sacrifice on the cross and your resurrection. No other foundation than your perfect righteousness. You are not only the chief cornerstone, but you are the, you're the head of the house, the owner of the house. And we are your family. And so we gather, Lord Jesus, and we, we gather our Father in your presence this morning for this family meeting to hear you speak to us, to hear you instruct the family, to hear you guide us in our life together as a family, to commit ourselves to family business. Lord, we praise you for your word. It's active it's alive, it's sharp, and it's healing. And so we pray, speak to us by your word and guide us in every good thing. In Jesus' name, amen. Some of you know I, I sometimes blog at a little blog called Pure Church. I started that blog over 10 years ago. And I chose the name Pure Church because at the time, uh, it was a reflection of the kind of Puritan writings that were shaping and influencing my thinking about the church. Someone has described Puritanism as a holiness movement in ecclesiological terms. Uh, Puritans were hungry for the Lord to purify the church by his word, and I don't know a Christian, a serious Christian, who doesn't hunger for the same thing. The Lord might take his word and wash his bride in the water of the word and purify her, cleanse her, and receive her to himself a more radiant bride without spot or wrinkle. So I started that little blog and looking back on it now some 12 years or so later, I, I realized that there was some omission in my thinking. That it's right to think about the church in terms of its purity with regard to doctrine, what the church teaches and believes and and theology, and it's right to think about a desire for a, a constantly reformed church according to the Word of God. Those things are necessary, but there's more to it than that. The purity of the church also has a lot to do with how the church 
responds to the vulnerable in society and in the church. In other words, a, a pure theology without a pure love is a pure fraud. Texts like the ones we're going to consider this morning, James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, have helped me over the years to come to see more of God's desire for his people. Purity involves personal piety, the ways in which we individually worship God and are related to him, but it also involves public compassion and justice. That's really the main point of this sermon, that, that a pure church is a church that's committed to both personal piety and public compassion and justice. And it's this vision of a pure church that I believe God wants ARC to wholeheartedly embrace and learn to put into practice. And so when we come to James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27 this morning, I want to ask and answer three questions. Number one, what is your religion worth? What is your religion worth? Number two, what does your religion do? What does your religion do? And number three, how do we do justice for the vulnerable families in our society? In other words, how do we put this religion, if it's worth something, into practice? James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. This is the word of the Lord. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit the orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So short, let's read it again. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. It's really verse 27 that draws our attention to this text in the series that we're in called 117, Learn to Do Justice. We have, as you know, laid down over several weeks some basic theological commitments that drive God's people toward doing justice in the world. And we have, over the last couple of weeks, began to sort of think about particular justice topics or issues, if you will. We began with slavery. We continued last time with immigration. And this morning we want to take up a, a theme that was even in the text on immigration from Deuteronomy 10 that runs throughout the entire Bible, this notion of widows and orphans and, and how it is God's people are to respond to these vulnerable families. We're going to choose a New Testament text this morning, James 1, who, who focuses on this, focuses us on this very topic. But it begins really by challenging us with a question. What is your religion worth? Religion is the subject of these two verses. It's, it's popular nowadays for people to describe Christianity as a relationship and not a religion. Anybody ever heard that? And when people say that, they mean to emphasize the fact that being a Christian is most fundamentally about personally knowing the Lord Jesus Christ and following the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, in that sense, Christianity is a, re a relationship with the true and living God, the crucified, buried, and resurrected Savior of the world. However, Christianity is also a religion, beloved. A religion is basically a system of, of faith and of worship. A religion determines our worldview. It determines how we live in the world, which things we can do and which things we cannot do. So we're not surprised 
that people who conceive of Christianity entirely in terms of their personal relationship with Jesus Christ will oftentimes have difficulty when Jesus says, don't do this and you must do that. Their religion has become solipsistic. I wanted to use a fancy word this morning. It's just the theory or the idea that the only thing that matters is the person and their desires. And so if Jesus gets in the way of my desires, then, well, I need to put Jesus aside for a little bit. If Jesus is going to baptize my desires, then me and Jesus is kind of cool. That's one of the negative unintended effects of thinking about Christianity as not a religion, but only a personal relationship. And in all of our personal relationships, we like to define the terms, don't we? But now Jesus is Lord. And if that means anything, it means he defines the terms. He defines the relationships. He has some thou shalt do's and some thou shan't do's. In other words, Jesus turns out to be pretty religious. The head of our religion. You cannot have Jesus without living the religion that Jesus gives. Following Jesus must define all of life in the Christian religion. I say all of that because when Christians emphasize the personal relationship, but they minimize the practical religion, we end up with a distorted faith. We end up with a religion that's a lot of talk, but no action. That's what James is pointing to in verse 26. Look there in verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. James is concerned about a Christian church that's always bumping its gums but never moving its feet. He's concerned with a Christian church that has a lot of things to profess but seems to possess very little of Christ. He's concerned with the worthless religion where a man can deceive himself into thinking that he's a Christian and can talk a lot like a Christian, but because he does not have what he claims to possess, his religion profits him nothing. The whole book of James is about show me, prove it, demonstrate it. We see that not only in James 1, verse 26, but even before he gets there, a little bit earlier in the chapter, look up at verse 19. That's not what I'm looking for. Verse 22. He says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Or jump over to chapter 2, verse 14. James writes there, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works. Can that faith save him? Verse 18 of chapter 2. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Chapter 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Chapter 4, verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So the Jesus religion requires faith and works. Christianity teaches that we are saved from God's judgment, saved from his wrath by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. But saving faith is never itself alone. Saving faith brings along with it some friends called good works. It brings along with it a changed life. That's how we know our faith is genuine and it's worth something. So the question again is, what is your faith worth? What is your religion worth? Verse 26, there's such a thing as a worthless religion. A religion that deceives the religious person. And beloved, there are many people in the world, many religious people in the world, who have neither a personal relationship with Christ or any deeds to show for it, to commend them to God. So a religion, beloved, must be worth your soul. It must be worth your eternal hope. Following it 
must be a good investment that pays a return on faithfulness to that religion. It must be able to save you from God's wrath and it must be able to change you for God's glory. Anything short of a religion that saves and changes is worthless. Which brings us to two quick applications. Number one, we want to make sure that we have that religion that profits us for eternity. That religion which rescues us from the coming judgment of God against the world and preserves us for enjoyment of that God who saved us. Of all the world religions, only one makes that promise. It's, it's common for people to think that religions, all religions have the same goals. But beloved, that's not true. That's, how we ha- that's why we have religious wars. Islam is not about your salvation and eternal life. It's about the rule of Islam in all the world. That's called Dar al-Islam. It does not have the same goal as Christianity. Buddhism does not have the same goal as Christianity. Neither does Hinduism or Zoroastrianism or Rafa. You know what I'm talking about. Rastafarianism. <laughs> Christianity is unique among the world's religions in that its goal is to take someone who was a sinner by nature and a sinner by habit and to renew that person, to, to, to do a miracle, to give them a second birth so that they are new creations for God in Christ Jesus. And so that their sins are removed far, as far from them as the east is from the west. And so that they live now a new life with, in fact, God living in them through faith in Jesus Christ. No other religious system promises that kind of change. And as a consequence of that faith in Christ who was crucified for our sins on the cross and buried and on the third day resurrected, well, well, we are forgiven. We are adopted as God's children. We are declared righteous before God. We, we receive the promised gift of the Holy Spirit who seals us until the day of our redemption. And we will be glorified with the Lord Jesus Christ. In the very moment that we see him, we will be transformed into his likeness. This, beloved, is a religion worth everything. This is a faith and a savior whom you can safely trust your soul to. And this morning, it's the offer that Jesus makes to everyone here, that anyone who would confess their sins, that means to agree with God about their sin, and turn away from their sin, and turn back to God through faith in Jesus Christ, that anyone who would turn to Jesus in faith would in fact be saved from the judgment of God that's coming against the world, and be declared righteous with God because of their faith in Christ, and indeed would be united to God through that same faith and will be changed in a moment and then changed forever when Christ comes. This is the only way to know God personally is through faith in Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, this is what we invite you to do. Forget in that sense every other religion And turn to this person, Jesus Christ, and believe in him so that you might be saved. If you got questions about that this morning, this is why we exist as a church. This is why we're here as Christians on a Sunday morning instead of sleeping in and and, and, uh, out at the park somewhere. We are gathered together because this message has brought us to God. And we are gathered together because we want to be a community, a family into which you can walk and discover the love of God. We'd like nothing more than to tell you what it means to follow Jesus in faith and so be saved. But now, Christian, I got a question for you, too. What's your religion worth? Uh, The Christian church desperately needs to recover the whole truth about what it means to follow Jesus. 
we have had some 500 years of Reformation emphasis on justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And I love that doctrine. And the church stands or falls on that teaching. And for 500 years, it has needed emphasis, especially in the 1600s and the 1700s as the church was breaking away from Roman Catholicism and breaking away from that religious system in order to emphasize the the saving work of Jesus. But for 500 years now, or it seems to me at least the last couple of hundred years, it's almost as if all the church ever hears is justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. As if there's nothing else in the Bible about what it means to follow Jesus. We desperately need to recover the rest of the Bible. Most gospel-believing Christians are suspicious and afraid of any talk, for example, of of good works. They love Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, and they should. By grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, lest any man should boast. It's, It's not of works. But they don't love verse 10 as much. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Those things go together or else we do violence to the faith unless we tear apart what God has joined together. We shouldn't spend so much time fighting against works righteousness that we fail to do works of righteousness. We need a whole faith, a complete faith. I'm afraid that James might find a lot of contemporary Christianity worthless. So we have to recommit ourselves to the whole counsel of God. We have to recommit ourselves to a vision of the Christian life where following Jesus actually changes us and changes the world. We have to recover a a Christian vision that that puts the Word of God into practical action in loving and serving our neighbor. And that's the burden of this series. And it brings us to our second question. What does your religion do? Now, it's not worthless religion that pleases God. Verse 27 tells us what kind of religion actually appears before God, which, which indicates it, it, it pleases God. Verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. A pure and undefiled religion, those words, pure and undefiled, It's a religion without corruption, without dirt, without pollution. Unlike the worthless religion of verse 26, true religion, as in verse 27, has value, has infinite value. But notice now, James doesn't define religion philosophically. He defines it practically by by what it does. James doesn't care so much about fancy, big theological terms. The whole book is just sort of gritty in its practical, basic, sharp, applied uh, tone. James, James cares about practical proof. So for James, a pure religion has two parts. You see it there, to visit widows and orphans in their affliction or distress and to keep oneself unspotted or unstained from the world. We might summarize those with with two words, that that a pure and undefiled religion is about helpfulness and holiness. Helpfulness and holiness. Let's take holiness first. True religion promotes personal purity or holiness. So any religion that says it's okay if you live a sinful lifestyle, is a worthless religion. See, true religion changes us. A a pure religion creates a a pure person. An undefiled religion leads to an undefiled, unstained life. I don't know if this is the case anymore, but when I was a little boy in grade school, I know that's a long time ago, I had school clothes and I had play clothes. 
Anybody know about that? Yeah, I threw this in here for old school. I had school clothes and I had play clothes. You wore your school clothes where? At school. And when you got home after school, you put on what? Your play clothes. If I ever wanted to see my mama mad, all I had to do was go outside and play in my school clothes. Get my school clothes dirty, come home with some grass stains and them new jeans she bought. And she done, and she, this is the whole speech. Hard as I work. <laughs> Slaving in that furniture factory 10 hours a day. Buy you some nice stuff. And you go, you know, you know grass stains can't come out of it. You know, so I get the whole speech, right? And see, I'm old school. There's some things I don't understand about society today. I really don't. Like, like paying a hundred dollars or more for jeans with holes in them. I have never understood that. And y'all think them the good jeans. Now, when I was a little boy, we had something called patches. If your jeans got a hole in them, you went and bought some patches, and you can iron the patch on the jeans and cover the hole. See, some of y'all know nothing about that. I'm sorry, I'm off subject. <laughs> Stay in the text. <laughs> School clothes were for looking clean and nice and put together. But Christianity is also known as the school of Christ. When we become students in his school, he gives us clean clothes. The Bible says they are white linen robes symbolizing his righteousness. And we're meant to be dressed in Christ and dressed in those robes. And we're meant when we're wearing those clothes, which is all the time, not to be out rolling around in the grass in the pig pen, not to be out dabbling, getting dirty in sin. We are, as the text says here, we are meant to keep ourselves unspotted from the world, unstained from the world. I noticed the the verbiage there, we are to keep ourselves. It's a personal responsibility. We cannot have someone do this for us. We can't delegate it. We can't phone it in. And if for some reason it's not happening, you can't blame other folk. We are most fundamentally to have a self-watch and to care for ourselves in such a way that we keep ourselves unstained from the world. Didn't matter if I came home from school and, and Marvin, my little friend, well, he went and got straight on his bike and went riding on his bike and playing and getting dirty. And if I came home and told my mama, well, Marvin, I don't care about no Marvin. What did I tell you to do? What were you supposed to do? And so it is with Christ, with each of us. He looks at us and says, keep yourself unstained from the world. As Paul puts it to Timothy, watch your life and doctrine closely. We can be helped by others. As Galatians 6 says, we must bear each other's burdens. Or as our church covenant puts it, we must exercise a a watchful care over each other. But at the bottom, each of us individually, as a matter of following, following Jesus personally, must resolve to pursue holiness and to keep ourselves unstained from the world. So, Look for applications. Here's six, real quick. Turn off the movie or the music that defiles your thinking and your desires. End, number two, unhealthy relationships that trap you in sinful patterns. Number three, avoid places of temptation that might lead you to stray. That's all on the sort of removal side. Now, positively, number four, read edifying material that renew your mind and build you up in the faith. Number five, fellowship with God's people where there's encouragement and safety. And number six, pray. It's all very basic. We don't need marvelous new strategy. We just need to commit to the ordinary means of grace and stay away from from the devil's traps keep ourselves unspotted from the world. The religion of Jesus creates a holy people dedicated to God. But secondly now, 
the religion of Jesus creates a helpful people dedicated to helping the vulnerable. And that's what we want to consider in terms of our, our theme of justice with this series. And, and this is what James insists on. Notice there, verse 27 again. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Widows and orphans are people in the ancient world who were extremely vulnerable in society. An orphan in our day is someone who's lost both parents. Perhaps their parents have died or maybe their parents have abandoned them. But in the Bible, in order to be an orphan, all you really needed to be was fatherless. That's often the synonym that's used in the Bible for, for an orphan, that this is someone without a father. And there the Bible is laying great emphasis on the, the place and the importance of fathers in providing for the family and protecting the family. In the biblical world, there's no child welfare agency. There's no orphanage that would take kids in and keep them off the streets and provide for them. So orphans were left to the streets and life on the streets, trying to beg or steal or whatever else in order to get scraps of food to try and make it. So these children were the most vulnerable class in the ancient world. Along with them was the widow, who was in a similar situation. First Timothy 5 gives us the most extensive sort of treatment or discussion of widows in the New Testament. And it's there that we get a biblical definition of what a widow is. A widow is not merely someone, a woman who has lost their husband to death. But there the New Testament church lays down a few other things as well. So that a widow was a woman over 60 years old whose husband had died who had no children or adult children who would have had the responsibility of honoring their mother and caring for her. And so therefore was without support and without means in society. So you get this picture of isolation. No, no spouse, no children. In that world, no opportunity for employment and to work if you were a woman in, that, in the ancient world. And so you were in this place of utter destitution, utter dependence and reliance upon others. And so like the orphan, if you were a widow in the first century, you, you might have found yourself forced to the streets to live on the streets or might have found yourself forced into a marriage or unhealthy relationship in order to survive. Now these two groups of people, widows and orphans, are, are really the poster children for vulnerable people in, in society. In the Bible, widows and orphans are, are often exploited. Therefore, they often appear as the, also the poster children of God's protection and justice. So consider our theme verse 117, Isaiah 117. You remember what it says there. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. And what's the next phrase? Bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. And why does Isaiah say that? Well, in verse 23, just a, a few verses later, we, we learn why. He says, everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. And he's talking about the leaders, the, the government of that time. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. There's a whole sort of governmental system and set of practices and corruption that actually oppresses and exploits these vulnerable people. Israel was doing that even though the law forbid it. Exodus, or excuse me, yeah, Exodus 22, verse 22 says, do not take advantage of a widow or an orphan. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Verse 23 and 24 is sobering. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. That's God speaking. He's going to defend the cause of the widow and the orphan to the extent that those who oppress the widow and orphan will find themselves widowed and orphaned. And this just comes right out of God's loving heart. So how does God describe himself in Psalm 68, verse 5? We read these words, that he is a father to the fatherless and defender of widows. So when we come to James chapter 1, verse 27... And James says that a religion that is 
pure and undefiled before God and specifies the Father, I think he has in mind all of this Old Testament teaching about God's fatherly love for vulnerable families. The law of Israel, Deuteronomy 14, 29, required that Israelites provide for uh, vulnerable members of society. So the, 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 the orphan and the widow is classed together with the sojourner and the Levite. This is what Deuteronomy 14, 29 says. The Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow who are within your towns, shall come and eat and be filled that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. Isn't it striking that in the old covenant, the Lord takes his priestly clan and puts it in the same existential category as widows and orphans and sojourners, as having no inheritance and dependent upon God's people. And so he says, from from, from priest to pauper, Support them. Provide for them. Make sure they eat and have a place to stay. Well, Israel didn't learn that lesson in Isaiah's day. They hadn't learned that lesson by Jesus' day. So Jesus says in Luke 20, verse 47, referring to the religious leaders then, that they would devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. This seems to be the same thing James is talking about in 126. They're talking a lot. They're praying a lot. But all the while they sharpen their fangs, and feed upon the vulnerable. Luke 20, 47 says they will receive the greater condemnation. A worthless religion is a dangerous religion. So when we think about widows and orphans, I think we're meant to have in mind uh, the kind of impulse that New Testament scholar Doug Moose says on this text. He says this, One test of pure religion, therefore, is the degree to which we extend aid to the helpless in our world. Whether they be widows and and orphans, immigrants are trying to adjust to a new life, impoverished third world dwellers, the handicapped or the homeless. The value of our religion is proven by the helpfulness of our action for the vulnerable. So what does our religion do? Does it propel us to turn away from ourselves and to turn to others in need and to serve the vulnerable families in our midst. If it doesn't, beloved, it's worthless, according to James 1. If we don't do that, beloved, we are living beneath our calling, according to the Bible. And this means, beloved, as we're talking about justice and injustice, judgment has to begin with the household of God. That when it comes to vulnerable families, maybe the most significant source of injustice is the indifference of God's people. So what do we do with this? Let's turn to this third question. How do we do justice for vulnerable families? I want to suggest four things in application. Number one, first we have to repent of overlooking them. That's what I was just alluding to in terms of saying that the main injustice that goes on might be the indifference of God's people. From the Old Testament law in Exodus and Deuteronomy all the way up to the New Testament letters of James and 1 Timothy, God's people, the Old Covenant Israel, the New Covenant Church, are all collectively instructed to care for widows and orphans. And in some small quarters... You can see pastors and churches emphasizing orphan ministry and adoption and things of that sort. But isn't it in small quarters of a church? I mean, think about your Christian life, the years of your Christian life. Can you count on one or two hands the number of times you have heard the church exhorted, instructed to care for widows and orphans? I've been a Christian 20 years or so. How long have you been a Christian? And how often have you been challenged and stirred and, and, and provoked to take this seriously and to bring this into your life in such a way that you apply it and live it out and find a way to, to live it out? Or is it more likely the case that we have been rightly but exclusively taught to 
lead a better family life ourselves and basically ignore the other families that are struggling. There are all kinds of prosperity gospels in the world, beloved. One of them looks a whole lot like how to have a good family while ignoring all the rest. So it may be that we need to repent of kind of indifference toward people who are vulnerable, families who are vulnerable, the the widows and orphans of our day. And it may be that we need to repent of perhaps a kind of censorious and harsh attitude that says, let them pull themselves up by their bootstraps. But beloved, you need boots in order to pull up by the bootstrap. And most of them, if they had any boots, would have already lifted themselves a long time ago. So we need to commit to removing the injustice of indifference and repent of overlooking people that God has a great passionate heart for who are vulnerable in society. Even in the prayer of lamentation, our sister Caitlin just gave us wonderful categories of people. Abused children, abused women, immigrants, the widow, the orphan. This idea of widow and orphan isn't meant to be hyper-literalized. I mean, it is meant to be taken literally, but not exclusively. These are, they are standing in as a device for all those who are vulnerable families in our society. And if we've neglected them, we need to search our hearts and repent of that. But number two, we have to give help that is really help, or at least the best kind of help that we can give. So not everything we could do is necessarily helpful. For example, in 2016, there are a little over 1,000 children in out-of-home foster care placements in Washington, D.C. It's almost 3,000, 2,600 and some, if you include sort of folks who are uh, in home as well and, and in the system in some kind of way. Now, we could view the foster care system as help. But that would mean you know nothing about foster care. It's one of the most broken systems in the country. And oftentimes the abuse that folks are being taken from is multiplied and doubled down in the hands of the state. So that ain't the best kind of help. Let, let the foster care fix it. Let, let the government fix it. I don't think that's the best kind of help. And it's certainly not the help that the scripture calls us to here. It might be better if as Christians, as I was saying a moment ago, really we got serious prayerfully, individually and collectively about actually being the care that people need. Notice the text says to visit the widows and the orphans in their affliction, in their distress. That means we're present when they're hurting and we're helping them in the hurt. If the Christian church would take James 1.27 seriously, if individual Christians would begin to pray and ask the Lord to, to move us and to guide us to, to act, to apply, verse 27, in D.C., foster care would be over. I mean, if there are a thousand kids needing parents, surely there are a thousand couples More than a thousand couples worshiping right now in churches who should be thinking about adoption. Maybe that's you. Maybe that's me and my family. But but you see what I mean? The best kind of help isn't to put them in state custody. The best kind of help is to put them in a family. In the same way that God has adopted us out of sin in the world and brought us into his family, our adoption of children looks a whole lot like the gospel in action. Maybe that's you. Or, or maybe you would be interested to play a part with one of our partners in the city, DC 127, an organization uh, committed to trying to end the foster care wait list and the need for foster care in the city by, first of all, supporting vulnerable families. There are many ways to help out. Maybe your small group or your housemates can, can become sort of partners in that ministry that provide relief to families when they're struggling a little bit. Some place for that family to bring their child and, and you keep the child for a weekend while mom and dad kind of get, get together or you keep the child for a couple of days during the week while mom and dad go to job interviews and things like that. So it was, it was amazing at the job fair to see how many folks showed up with their children. 
and then to watch volunteers, job coaches come alongside them and, and say, you know what, let me hold the baby while you talk to the employer. And to care for the baby and to push the stroller while, while mom and dad, they're obviously through some effort because they're bringing their kids to try and get a job. This is a small picture of, of practical help that I think James 1 calls us to. So maybe it's DC 127. Maybe that's the first step. You're not, not quite ready to jump over into an adoption. That's okay. God, God will give you time and grace and he'll lead you. And he doesn't necessarily require all of us to do that. But So maybe, maybe DC 127, going to that training in a couple of weeks would be the way to go. If you're interested in that, see our sister Abby Sagai. She can get you more information. But providing help that is really help requires we be smart about our benevolence and, and our service as a church. Right now, for most churches, over 80% of their benevolence investment in the community and the ministry goes to, you know, buying groceries or maybe paying some utilities, helping with clothing, and all that's good work. If I believe a couple of... Websites I've looked at in recent months, 2% of church ministry and benevolence goes to helping people find a job. I'm convinced that's backwards. I mean, if we keep pouring 80% into that form of benevolence, which you know, provides a food voucher or clothing, that's good work. I'm not knocking that. But we're just sustaining people in the same condition that they're already in. What would be the change if we could see 80% of our effort or 50% of our effort put into actually getting people connected to gainful, meaningful, uh, decent paying work? Well, as a consequence of working, all those other things get taken care of. And with work, there's also dignity, right? And, And what if we could pair with that work effort, what if we could pair with them help in building assets? in saving, in, in, in sort of growing to the point of maybe purchasing a home or, or other kinds of assets? And what if we can work with them to escape the fragility of wealth building that, that afflicts communities like ours such that mom and dad might actually, over the course of a lifetime, have something to leave junior? Well, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, or if you've thought deeply about this or not. We are talking about this at Southeast Life on, on Friday night. Our ministry in this community is a joyful, glad, gospel-centered community uh, ministry. But it's nothing less than attempting to reconstitute and rebuild an entire people. You've got to grasp that. What, what Peterson read for us in, in Lamentations 5 reads like a news report in so many ways of our community. The levels of vulnerable families in our community. The numbers of people who, who, who could say honestly with, with, no, with no vitriol or anything like that, just can honestly say, I've, I've never seen a healthy family. Those numbers are staggeringly high. And so Christianity can't be about, let me give you Jesus and a little bit of blessing to add to your life. It's got to be, let me give you Jesus and a whole new life that comes with him. Repairing relationships, repairing hearts, repairing identities, reconstituting families, rebuilding wealth, and all of that against some pretty massive external forces that helped to create the problem in the first place. So, so I, I'm just wanting us to have a, a deep and profound sense of our mission here. We are not merely a preaching station where you come and hear a sermon and you go home. We're meant to be missionaries in this community, not only telling folks about Jesus, but holding out this whole new Jesus way of life that so many of us have needed ourselves and so many still need. So we want to give help that's really help, and we need to see this long-term work that's before us. Thirdly, it's been implied in some of what I'm saying, as, as part of how we look to sort of see justice done and to see vulnerable families first stabilized and then by God's grace flourish, we need to promote healthy, stable marriages 
between marriage-ready partners. Every word in that sentence matters. Sometimes I think the most dangerous person in the world is an evangelical who gets an isolated stat. And so I, I see all over the place evangelical Christians who reduce all the problems of communities down to, well, men and women should just get married. That is a gross distortion of what the research actually says. What the research actually says, and a little bit more nuance, is that children and individuals do best when they are, when they are raised by their married biological parents in stable good homes and good relationships. If you add what the social science literature calls turbulence to that picture, so turbulence would be domestic abuse, turbulence would be housing instability, turbulence would be poverty and some other things, then all of those great results that seem to come along with marriage, they begin to dissipate. So it's, it's foolish, for example, then to just say, hey, this sister's living with this guy, and it's, we know it's an unhealthy relationship, but what they should do is just get married. No, they shouldn't. She should leave. He should be separated. We should evangelize them and disciple them, and we should help them, and we should teach them how to have a fruitful relationship, and, and we should put marriage on the other end of all of that necessary counseling and discipleship work. Marriage is not a magic bullet, beloved. It is not a magic bullet. But... Those of us who've known the blessing of marriage, a good, healthy, stable marriage, we know our lives are materially different in ways we can't even imagine. So we don't want to fall in the liberal trap of acting like marriage is just for us elite liberals. Isn't it amazing that the people who argue most against marriage seem to enjoy it at high rates? The Bible word for that is hypocrisy. So we want to be a church community where people learn to be well. It's okay that you're not okay when you come. But it's not okay that we stay that way. We are together as a community to grow in well-being, mental health well-being, uh, relational well-being, uh, family well-being, and so on. And we don't want to try to create sugar substitutes to what God has designed. So we don't want to be shy about marriage and the, and the beauty of marriage. And we don't want to be embarrassed about it if we're not married. But we don't want to dip downplay it either. This is part of God's good plan for our lives. It's part of how the injustice of vulnerable families is over the long term fixed by creating stable, healthy, joyful families. It seems like to me that the world has been trying to fix this problem in every way except the solution that God gives in his word. And it seems like that me, the church, has been trying to apply this solution as if it's a magic bullet. It's not. It takes a long time and a lot of work. And if we're committed to justice for vulnerable families, we've got to be committed to that long term and that slow work, which brings us finally. Number four, we need to actively oppose the forces that are breaking up families and making them vulnerable today. Keep in mind Isaiah 1 and the corruption of government leaders and practices there. Um, this happens, this vulnerability happens not merely as a matter of individual personal decision. That contributes. But it also happens as a matter of macro-level policy and societal attitudes that create the fracturing and the breaking of families to begin with. Now, we're in a community that's 90% African American. That has a particularity to it. I don't say that as a way of, of, in any way, suggesting that if you're not African-American, you don't belong to this community, this church. No, God, no, that's, that's not what I'm saying at all. But if we're going to minister in this community, and this is what we feel called to, to be in the neighborhood, for the neighborhood, that means there's a particular history and culture and people and, and set of engagements that actually are relevant to how we minister and what we encounter. So the state of African-American families is not reducible to who made what decision, dating decision last week. That's not our starting place. We're not starting at some blank slate where everybody's more or less doing well and, oh, some people are making bad decisions. No, the state of African-American families begins in 1619 at least. And the systematic separation of families, mothers and fathers from their children, children from siblings, over the course of 250 years in American chattel slavery. 
And you know, the first miracle we see after the end of slavery is African-Americans off in Arkansas or Missouri or Florida picking up what little possessions they have and walking back to Georgia and South Carolina and Kentucky to try and find that spouse or kid they were separated from. I never believe a lot that we don't care about family. The existence of our families is a miracle. The stress on our families historically is demonic. From slavery to Jim Crow and the kinds of government policies that were on the face of it designed to help but no less separated families. So if you go back to the old uh, aid for uh, families with dependent children, AFDC, which gave way to TANF, what we commonly call welfare. Many of you will know that when that policy was put in place, an explicit requirement of receiving government benefits was that there would be no man in the home. Now the best spin I can put on that is that you've got a society trying to sort of um, emphasize and, and protect the role of, of husbands and fathers in the home, but the, but the wicked sort of destructive effect of that is the further tearing apart of families. We, we have a, we've had a policy regime that has created orphans and widows in our community. And then we come down to the 80s and 90s, and we come down to the so-called war on drugs, which has been a war fought almost exclusively in black and brown communities. And, and you see the disproportionate rate of um, prosecution and criminalization and imprisonment for the same crimes that others have committed. And those long prison sentences, breaking up families. And not only that, breaking up the possibility of families. Because if a, if a man or a woman has spent any significant time in prison, their marriageability prospects go way down. Because when they get out, think of all the things that they are systematically, by policy, excluded from. Any kind of government benefits, any kind of housing assistance. There are almost no sort of back-to-work programs. What are we doing to our families? And should the church be silent in the face of it? We can't fix it all. That's why we have to lament that's why we need lamentation somewhere in the spiritual life. We cannot do everything, but we must not do nothing. We must not do nothing. And we cannot, contrary to some of our prior training, we cannot reduce this and equate this to abandoning the gospel. It is the application of God's word. It is taking the whole counsel of God seriously. So, among the justice issues that come right up to our doorstep is this issue of vulnerable families. And we have to start with our own hearts, where the we have been indifferent to the vulnerable among us. And if we find that we have, then we want to ask God grace to repent. And then we want to show our repentance like we show our faith, with deeds in keeping with repentance. Figuring out a way, as we have been saying throughout this series, to run in our own lanes, to figure out what individually the Lord might have us do. And as we have these conversations and pray and talk to figure out categorically as a church what the Lord might have us collectively to do. I don't know all the answers. I don't want you to think that I do. You probably weren't at risk of thinking that I did. I don't have all the answers. This is why we have to be family. This is why we have to have these conversations. This is why we need to discern together what the Lord would have us do individually and collectively. There are a lot of lives that ride on the church being the church, taking the gospel and the word seriously and applying it. May the Lord give us grace to do so. Let's pray. Lord, we need your grace. We need your mercy. We need your power. We are weak people, Lord. And we boast in our weakness. We flee self-reliance. 
And we boast in our weakness because of that word which says that when we do so, your power would remain on us. So we abandon ourselves and we cast ourselves upon you, upon your grace, upon your power. And we ask you for your wisdom. We ask you for your strength. We ask you for an added measure of your love. Grant us grace, O Lord, to love the vulnerable, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant. Lord, grant us grace to love the abused and neglected. Help us to see them and help us to serve them. Not like we're saviors because we are as broken as anybody else, but like we have a savior who is able to heal everyone. So grant us grace and help us to know our individual course, O Lord, and help us to know our collective course, and help us to do your work, your way, for your glory, for the vulnerable. In Jesus' name, amen.